Amen. I love the way Blake expressed that in his prayer with all that's going on. The biggest thing is God. God is happening. God's at work. God's in our lives. That's the biggest thing, most important truth. And that's why we're here today, is it not? And that's what we're going to be celebrating this week. That's why this week is a week of joy. It is joyful because Christ has come and Christ is coming. We know that. We believe that. Now, I know we've already announced this, but I want to make sure there are no mistakes, no confusion about it. The schedule for Christmas, this Christmas Eve, 3.30 and 5 o'clock, we'll have a service here in the worship center. And then the two Sundays after Christmas, December 27th, January 3rd, we'll have two services, not three. One will be at 9, the other at 10.30. We have childcare at 10.30. So during this time, the schedule at the church is a little different, but our concern is exactly the same. We want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to know him, know him better. We want to enter into everything that the Lord has for us. And as I say, what he has for us is joy. That's what Christianity is about. The Apostle Paul said that the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy. Now, some people have that, well, they have a hard time understanding that or accepting it. Some years ago when I was in grad school, we had a guest scholar come to our seminar. Hit a long fuzzy white beard, kind of unkept. I couldn't decide if he looked more like Moses or Karl Marx. Those of you who laugh, I know you've seen a picture of Karl Marx. Some of you don't know what Karl Marx looked like. Beard. And he was a serious, a morally serious man. And he talked about the nature of philosophy himself as a philosopher, specialty in American philosophy. He said, philosophy is the love of wisdom or the love of truth. Etymologically, that's what philosophy means. But he says, it's a love of truth, not so that we might find happiness for ourselves. It's to make the world a better place. He says, this world has so many troubles. There's so much so much pain, so much suffering. The truly wise ones, the ones who love truth, will live that truth by making the world a better place. It's not about happiness. It's not about joy for you or me or anyone else. I have to tell you, he was intense. And I admired him in this way, that he was morally serious. He wasn't superficial in the way he viewed life. He realized people were suffering. There were problems in life. But I also felt like he was missing something. He himself talked about his own life. He just shared some of his own life experiences and some of his own life's troubles. And by his own admission, he was anything but a happy man. And no wonder he felt acutely the burdens of the world. Now, a lot of people when they hear about joy and Christians emphasizing joy, they have a hard time taking that in because look at the world. Look at it. Children are starving. Injustice is happening 
Nations fight nations and people within nations fight one another. So many families breaking up, so much drug abuse, alcohol abuse, there's suicide, people struggling with depression. There are so many heartaches in the world, so many traumas, so much trouble. How can you talk about joy with all of those things happening in the world? How can you possibly talk like that? To many people, the talk of joy, even around this season, maybe especially around this season, sounds like so much superficial, shallow nonsense. It sounds self-centered. It sounds tawdry, cheap, unworthy of a morally serious person. And yet, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is the key to all this? How should we think about joy? How can we enter into joy in a world like this? Joy to the world. You know the words. I don't have to recite them all. Joy to the world, the King is come. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. There's joy in the world because the blessing of God flows as far as the curse is found. Those are the lyrics to the song. In other words, joy to the world is not about the first advent of Jesus. It's about the second advent. It's not about something that's happened in history, except to the extent that Christ's coming the first time has inaugurated a changed experience for, for humankind. He has unleashed the kingdom of God in the world, but it's not been consummated. The joy that we have is looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. When the world is healed, when it's put right, when what's out of joint is put back in place, when hearts are, are strengthened, when sin is done away with, with darkness is replaced by light. Joy to the world is when the Lord comes the second time, when the Savior truly does reign, when the curse on the earth brought about through the fall of humanity, when that is no more. In other words, the joy we have is joy in what is coming, joy in the victory of God, Joy in the redemption that is ours. Well, is there no joy today? Well, of course there's joy today. Jesus has come. But that experience of joy, that present experience of joy we have right now, sometimes it's so real and it takes us over and our hearts are happy and we're at peace. And all the troubles of the world seem far away in that moment. But that kind of joy, that present experience of joy is like a vacation. It never lasts. It comes and it goes, but it doesn't last. You don't want it to last. Do you want to be the kind of person who's just as happy as can be, even though there is all the pain and suffering in the world that we have? Do you want to be the kind of person that so long as everything's going all right with you, you're not worried about a thing? Of course you don't. That's not the kind of person you want to be. And so, though there are 
seasons, seasons in which we are rejuvenated and inspired, that we, these seasons, we experience the joy of God and all the troubles seem to recede, those troubles will come back and press on our minds. And we'll see the violence and the human trafficking and the poverty and the injustice. We'll see those things. They'll trouble us. At other times, those troubles will come into our lives and we will carry the burden ourselves. It is then that we experience joy, not so much as a present experience, so much as a, an expectation of what's going to come. That is, we have tasted of the kingdom of God, but we know the kingdom's coming, and we rejoice in that fact. We celebrate that, that in spite of all the darkness, this whole universe will be filled with light because God himself will be available to the universe and he will be the light. We anticipate that, we expect that, and that is our joy and our consolation. What you might say is this, that Christian joy in a world like ours is a stubborn joy. It's a joy that says, I will worship God, I will praise him, I will give thanks to him, I will even celebrate what he has done and especially what he is doing because I know that in the end, all will be put right. It's a little over three years ago that my, my brother was shot and killed. It was a random thing. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time and was murdered. Some of you were here at that time, and you remember when I came back and I shared with you what the Lord, I think the Lord, spoke to me at that time. It was this, God is good, grace is real, all is well. All is well? How can you say all is well? All is well because all will be well. And that's how we can look at this world, that God is good, grace is real. Even in the midst of the darkest hour, God's grace is present to uphold and sustain and help us. And all is well because all will be well. So we have this stubborn hope that refuses to despair, refuses to yield, but instead stands up and sings Christmas carols and sings joy to the Lord. Even now, that is our witness to the world. Now, we have to fill that in. We talk about how redemption is going to come. How do we fill in that picture? Well, there's no better place to turn than the book of Revelation. Because Revelation was written to a church facing dark times. They were facing persecution. It was a time in which Jesus Christ, though raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, he seemed very, very distant. He didn't seem like Lord because Caesar seemed like Lord. And the church was suffering. So Revelation pulls back the curtain. What it looks like is happening. What it looks like is permanent is to be shown to be temporary. And it reveals spiritual realities behind what you see with your eyes. And it speaks of what is going to be 
When you turn to Revelation, the last two chapters are extraordinary. Chapters 21 and 22. They describe the new heavens and the new earth that are ahead of us. These descriptions tell us just enough to inspire hope, hope even in the midst of darkness. I want to read a few of the verses there. Look over in Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read the first four verses of that chapter. Listen to what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. What a wonderful picture. A new heavens, a new earth. Everything is renewed, healed, put right, put back in place. There's no more sea which in Revelation is a symbol for the chaotic, evil forces that seek to undo the work of God. It's out of the sea that the beast who comes to persecute the church arises. But now, in this new heavens and new earth, no more sea. All of that is gone. And you see this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. This comes from Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. He spoke of a coming day of redemption when God would make Jerusalem new. And many Jews believed that in the days of Messiah, this new Jerusalem, which had been waiting in heaven, would be lowered down to earth. It represented different things to different people. These are rich symbols that don't necessarily have just one meaning. But it's interesting here, the new Jerusalem is spoken of as a bride prepared for her husband. And in the New Testament, we see that the church is called the bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, we see Jerusalem sometimes speaks of a city and sometimes speak of the people in that city. I'm not sure what's all involved here, but coming out of heaven, God's establishing his kingdom and his people are prepared and they will be there as a bride prepared for her husband and God will be with them. In fact, the language, Old Testament language, covenantal language is used. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's an ancient promise from God to Israel when he chose them. I will be your God and you will be my people. Israel needed nothing more than that. Ultimately, that's all anyone needs. I will be your God. You will be my people. But what doesn't show through in the English is a little detail in the Greek that I think is wonderful. Because the language of the Old Testament is all in singular. I will be your God. You will be my people. God was speaking to Israel. Here in the Greek, it's actually plural. I will be your God and you will be my peoples. 
one people, but made out of many peoples. This picks up that theme in Revelation that Jesus Christ has redeemed not just Israel, but people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. It doesn't matter your ethnic group or the color of your skin or anything else. Jesus Christ has come for all humanity, and he will be our God. That's the reason for celebration here. Because here it says that God will be with us and he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And then over in chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, the New Jerusalem. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. You remember the tree of life from the Garden of Eden? The tree of life that Adam and Eve could no longer eat from. They had no rights to that tree because they had sinned, so they were cut off from it. Now, now the peoples of God who make up the people of God, there they are, and the tree of life is there, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, not every year, every month, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Remember how the land was cursed after sin entered into the world? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. In fact, he will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. When humankind were created, they were created to rule in God's place on this earth. Because of sin, we don't rule, we are ruled. Or at least we don't rule well, we are ruled. But there is coming a day of redemption where we will reign as we were intended to reign. Not only will God be with us, but there will be no more darkness because he will be the light. It's so rich here. I love where it says, no longer will there be any curse because God has now removed the curse by his blessing. Remember, his blessing flows. We're going to sing it in a minute. His blessing flows as far as the curse is found because now there's total redemption. And it says his name is on their forehead, meaning that a mark of ownership is on us. We belong to God and we'll see his face. Moses wanted nothing more but to see the face of God. Let me see you. And God says, you cannot see my face and live. Moses only saw the back of God. He could not see his face. But the day is coming when we will see God face.
to face. We'll have that kind of relationship with God. And all the sorrows, they will be in the past. So do we take seriously the suffering of the world? Of course we do. Do we experience suffering in this world? Of course we do. Sometimes our joy is of the stubborn sort, even the struggling sort, where we feel weighed down and burdened down and out of faith. We have to put those things aside and rejoice because we know our God and we know what he's going to do. And so every Christmas, we focus on the first advent and the second advent, and taken together, we remind ourselves we have reason for joy. We do it because we need the reminder. By by announcing what God is going to do, we are able to take our stand in a world that seems at times as if it's spun completely out of control. That's what we do. So we sing our hymns like Joy to the World. We worship together. We give thanks to God against the tide, against the darkness, against the naysayers. We do all that. On Christmas Eve, the room is darkened, and one at a time we light candles And before long, the whole room glows with light. As we rejoice in our God, as we stubbornly rejoice in our God, looking forward to what he's going to do, the candlelight glows and the world has hope. Or they can, they can see it, they can believe it. It's so important for us to keep our joy. If you've been reading along in the devotional Blake wrote for Advent, which is just extraordinary, it's so good, he has one uh, portion where he talks about this very subject. He raises this very question, can you really have hope when so much is wrong? He quotes C.S. Lewis, hope is a serious business of heaven. It's serious business because It emerges out of God's serious commitment to save the world. And so during this season, we intentionally refuse to be pulled down, dragged down, and we lift our sights to him and we worship him. That's where we find hope. My prayer for myself and my family, for all of you, This is a prayer I think that we could pray for so many others. It comes from what Paul says in Romans. He speaks a blessing over the Roman Christians, and he says, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace so that you may overflow with hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, We thank you for giving us hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the new world that is coming, for the new heavens and earth. Thank you that we can be part of that, that though we know you now, then we will know you perfectly, or perhaps better, 
then we will be known perfectly by you and we will enter into a relationship of unimaginable intimacy. We thank you for salvation. And Father, regardless of what we see or the trouble that is all around, we know this is so, and so we rejoice. We trust in you, and so we rejoice. We believe in you, and so we rejoice. Amen.